NetCloud. Get connected, cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored, managed security solutions to our next generation cloud platform, NetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at netcloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, netcloud.com. Welcome everyone to the compilation episode, closing off series three of the Vanguard podcast. We're taking our break over the festive period before coming back stronger and louder with more interesting and inspiring guests in 2023. I thank all our listeners for joining us every other week and listening to, learning from, and being inspired by our awesome guests. Whether it was listening to an Aussie media personality who moved across the country to learn and fulfill his dream, learning more about putting together a Hollywood animation film and learning from IT and tech entrepreneurs about their journeys and how they got there, or finally, our emotional rerun of Luke Swan's brilliant episode about failing to succeed as a tribute upon his sad passing. There's something for everyone, I'm sure. So sit back, relax, and listen to the best bits of the Vanguard Podcast Series 3. Failure doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to be a successful in in whatever you do later in life. And people need to realize that failure is a part of the the learning game, learning where you want to be, where you you know what career you want to end up. So that was really interesting. You know, you've become very professional and 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 very successful in your chosen career, but it all started out with failures. And what am I going to do? I think that's a really important life lesson, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I say. Um... Yes, I, uh, my mum and dad said, and in particular dad, like these days things are different, aren't they? You know, kids, um, there's so many courses out there and if, even yeah. if you don't pass your, your year 12 over here, which is your the end of secondary school, there's still a way for you to find a job um, or find a course that you might like and work towards getting into uni that way, whether it's through TAFE courses and um, I hope I'm not speaking about stuff that people have no idea, but you know, there's so many avenues towards achieving something. Back then, it was like you either leave school and you go and do a trade, you become yep. an electrician, you become a, a carpenter, or you go to uni. There was no other options there That's at right. all. And my option was I was useless with my hands, uh, couldn't hammer a nail into a piece of timber. That's and true. I was, I was never, I was never going to be a trade person, so I had to try and find a way of finding out what I was good at. And yeah, you're right. Like I, I went to uni, I, I, I struggled. I had no idea really what I was doing. I failed and I really came home and I sat with my folks and said, this is not me. This is, I'm not going to be able to do this for the next 50 years. I've got to go and find what I want to do. And the best thing my parents did was I went away as a 19 year old to uh, North Queensland up in the tropics uh, and they were happy for me to do it because they said, yeah, go and experience life and hopefully yep. you'll find something that you want to do. What we you always one of those kids that, oh, he's a smart kid, he's in the top you know, 5% of the group? Um, because obviously people associate a PhD and a doctorate 
as you know massively intellectual or massively intelligent and i'm not saying people aren't but what i'm trying to define here was sports seemed to be the catalyst not education so how how did that you know transpire to be together yeah no, I, I would um very much echo what, what you're saying there that i was um I guess I've always, I've always been smart enough, intelligent enough, yeah. um, and I think at at kind of um, high school level and up towards GCSE, um, I could kind of get away um, get away with it to an extent of being a, a relatively intelligent kid nat- naturally. Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't say I was the best student in the world, but yeah. um, I I could I, I could get away with it to an extent. Um, I, I wasn't a terrible student, but I certainly wasn't, um, you know, committing hours and hours and hours to, to studying. It was very much my, it, it was alongside my sport, which I was committing hours and hours and hours to. Yeah. Um, I guess at the next phase of my educational um, stop, if you like, um, that's where I got a little bit found out, to be honest, because I think when you move from GCSEs up to A-levels, it was quite a big jump. Um, and um, whilst I was still trying to continue along the sporting lines, um, I probably made a slightly bad decision in that I didn't go to a, a school sixth form. I went off to a college where there's a lot more freedom, um, yeah. and and I didn't. It, it didn't. As I say it didn't click for me. The reason it didn't click is because I, I I didn't put in what I needed to at that, that level. I was, I guess, I was lucky enough that I was quite good at sport that allowed me to to get the scholarship in America, um, where you. Know, I could act, I, I got in based on a single test, SAT test, if people may have heard of before. Yep, um, yep. They, they didn't really look at my A-levels, um, which is a good job because I, I didn't really get it. I got a B and an E, I think it was, right. um, which you know doesn't really tally up with someone who's gone on to do a PhD. Um, but I think what it possibly does show is that it, it also isn't the be-all and end-all at that age um, because there is different routes to, to doing things. So... I think that the golden thread was always for me was sport, and I guess it was a little bit of a wake up call um, at that that A level time of my life, and and thankfully I had the sport to fall back on a little bit, but that also gave me the route into further education. Um, so I think you know what I what I would probably try to say around all of that is is there's a several ways to skin a cat, and. Yep. And I don't think necessarily my route is correct or someone else's route is correct. And being heavily academic or heavily sport, I just think if you've got a passion for something, you will find the right, find a way to get to it. And there might be some wake up calls along the way. Um, But for me anyway, um, it it got me to to a point where, you know, I was able to to do both my sport um, and study um, in an area that I was really passionate about. Love that. I love that. There's, there's a, there's a quote right there, Phil. Passion, passion for something, you'll always find a way. Um, innovation from, you know, from Walt Disney back in the 40s and 50s with, you know, flip pads and all that to to animation now, you must have seen some massive, massive innovative leaps and bounds in, in your industry. Yes, uh, you know, and, and obviously I don't come from uh, come to animation, which obviously I work a lot in from that te- technical side. And no. I guess if you were speaking to somebody on that technical side, they'd, they'd be able to say ten times even more so because obviously CGI, Toy Story was the first CGI movie, and that completely changed, uh, you know, how animations and how animations were were made, and 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 with the budgets of you know being able to do CGI now on a 
on a home computer pretty much. Yeah, of course. It's meant that, you know, it's really democratized the process, whereas old, you know, hand-drawn 2D animation, you, you only studios could make that because it would take, you know, you'd have to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people doing it of course, for yeah. years and years to get Super a movie. Supercomputers, everything. You know, now it's you know, yeah. so so it's really democratized the process. A lot more movies can get made, which are CGI, but still, you know, and, and the technology is escalating and getting stronger and better and faster, so much quicker uh, all the time. That that you know what what only you know Disney could have done ten years ago, pretty much anyone can do now. Yeah. Um, so 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 that has had massive changes, just purely on the technical front and and allowing access to the industry. Um, and, to, and make those movies, but 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 in, in terms of just purely from my perspective, which is from a writer's perspective and writing story, yeah, you know that that again it was just as innovative in how Toy Story delivered that, and then you know ones that came after like Shrek and what have you, um, you know, and, and Wally and Up and you know just a load of really fabulous films that came out after that, which you know whereas animation movies before and were kind of for kids. And so kind of the level of, you know, thought that went into the quality of the story, the characterization, the, the dialogue, the humor, all that stuff. Right now, I think you'd find that's the best in the world. Better, you know, now adult films supposedly are just like Marvel stuff. And it's all, yeah. I think those scripts are by and large, some great exceptions, but by and large, pretty rudimentary. Yeah. You look at the animation scripts, they are of the highest quality. You have huge emotional journeys and payoffs and surprises. Yep. Worlds, you know, which, which are inside out. You know, what a brilliant idea. Someone inside the kid's head. Brilliant, and, brilliant movie. And great themes like learning that embracing how to be sad is not a bad thing. Don't be scared to be sad. You know, it's a natural part of the process of, of moving forward. Uh, and things like this, which are Tell me an adult story out there, movie, which has got as big a theme, as wise a point, and as emotionally moving and a rich kind of uh, uh, um, uh, outcome as that. There isn't one. And so mm. that's what I think animation, purely on a writing term, has, is, is top draw now. It's the best, in the best of any genre for me. I want to ask you about inspiration because, you know, you must have had an inspiration somewhere. I read somewhere about a, a supposed airport mishap. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was something I, I, I found out from research. But what was the inspiration behind this? Yeah, that that's that story really did happen. And I actually right. on the plane did write, like basically draw what I wanted to make um, on the plane on a napkin. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, it is. We still have a picture of it that they use for like Throwback Friday on social. So basically, we were doing Magic Candy Factory. I was traveling all over the world. We were getting huge placements. It was highly profitable, but it was also a novelty. You know, like at the end of the day, the technology could make anything in confectionery, but yeah. it was still confectionery at the end of the day. So the most popular product Magic Candy Factory made was something called a sweet selfie. So this was basically, you could go in and you could take like an image from your Instagram, or you could have your photo taken right there in the store and it would make your face in candy in any color, in any flavor combination that you wanted. That's awesome. And it was super cool, but 
how many candy sweet selfies do you need? How many candies of your face do you need in your life? Like of course. not one a day. Is it going to change your life? No, it probably delights you, educates you, but maybe, you know, there's more. So when I was on my way back from one of these events where I had been making sweet selfies for media and people at this big launch event all day, I was in the queue for, um, you know, to go through security, you know, hand luggage only at Dusseldorf airport. Yep. And very unfortunate incident. I used to carry around a disgusting Ziploc bag full of vitamins. I've been an avid user of supplements, optimization, green juice, et cetera, since my twenties. Mm-hmm. And the zipper on my carry on bag just unfortunately grabbed that plastic bag inside in, at the wrong angle, ripped it open and then flew the vitamins all over the floor in the middle of, you know, a German um, airport security area. Oh, fantastic. It wasn't super great. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm on my hands and knees picking them up. Everyone is very annoyed. Like, you know, this like, poof, you know, everyone was very, very, very annoyed with me going down the queue. And I just thought to myself at that moment, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then I thought, oh my God, we can make customized gummies gummy vitamins are the fastest growing segment of vms i wonder if we could make a customized combination um gummy with with health at the focus of it instead of novelty that is fantastic. the idea came from yeah yeah opportunities yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, so the innovative side of of your organ of your business and 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 what you provide is, I guess, taking the skills of the individual and taking the skills of the certain positions that are available from your clients, matching them together, and and finding a the right candidate and b looking at the holes within that candidate of of their knowledge and training, and then providing the trainings to suit. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. So what we've done, and we've built a huge. Um, knowledge-based asset, uh, a data asset about the skills and the occupations and their courses. Um, So we want to understand basically three entities, people. So Mm -hmm. people are an aggregation of skills and we understand by learning from different data sources, if it's a CV, uh, LinkedIn page, all the different information that we can find in HR uh, systems, which we there's a lot of them, if it's the human capital management system, the uh, applicant tracking system, and mm-hmm. so forth. Combining all of those, we can learn from your work experience, from your activities, from your courses that you've taken, what are the skills, what is your profile of skills? By looking at skills, we think this is the most atomic level that we can um, analyze, and by that, make a very accurate match to positions by looking at the skills and not at the job title, for example. And then we go and analyze occupations and positions. And for, for that, we have um, really developed more. We, we have right now, our asset has more than 1.5 billion data points about labor. So wow. we've taken job boards. We've analyzed the trends, right? We've taken, uh, we've aggregated and collected sources from um, taxonomies, best, best known taxonomies uh, from the European market, it's called ESCO, from the Department of Labor of the States, it's called ONET, and, and so forth. Uh, we have analyzed also, of course, LinkedIn. LinkedIn yeah. has more than 700, 700 million profiles and job descriptions. So we've analyzed all of those data points about labor to understand, again, what are the skills for a specific position. And this is a, it's, it's actually a very uh, tough, tough and, and a high barrier to to 
to pass. So we've done all that data work to be able to have the best fit candidate to an open position. And, and so we have models, we call it solutions for talent acquisition. So matching people from outside the organization to positions that are open right now. So really having the best fit candidates and the right uh, candidates talking about diversity, uh, that, that's a part of it, to achieve all those diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. So really having the right and diverse people match to positions and quickly. So we're really decreasing the, the hiring time because as you said, as a manager, as a hiring manager, you know how tough it is to find the right candidate. And often you don't have any candidate. It's not just having an abundance of CV and having difficulty screening. It's also sometimes not having any source of people coming in. So we're going to help you find those people by bringing um, the vast majority of, of uh, the the sources and databases that we have about candidate and we're going to help you screen them very accurately to the skills uh, profile of the position you have so that's one model if data had a sound it could be this the sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business MetCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Yep. I'm the guy who asks, well, if I can't understand it, I can't sell it. And I'm, I like to keep it really simple. So explain it to me. So I said the same thing to um, these social landlords. How does your rent system work? How does your, your collections process work currently? And they talk through a system which probably hasn't changed for 25 years. And I've got to be also really honest, Scott, a lot of them are still using very, very similar processes, which is a challenge for them. I'm but sure. We kind of took that insight and went, yeah, we can, we can automate that process in a number of ways. And like everything, the big question is, does it work? And we, we put it into one landlord and we thought, okay, if we can get a 20% response rate, you know, basically an automated system calling out, chasing people who were in arrears, if we can get a 20% response rate, bearing in mind how much money they spend trying to get that currently, that would be a fantastic result. And it blew the doors off. It came in at 42%. And everybody thought, okay, you know, yeah, exactly. But perhaps that isn't sustainable for us It'll, it'll, you know, taper off. Truth of the matter is, in the last 10 years, our response rates have gone up to more like 66%. And you think, wow, why is that? And it's just understanding, and this is something that's evolved in, in that sector. People who live in affordable houses, anybody living in a house, they don't want to lose the house. And if they're a bit behind on the rent, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. Exactly, yep. You need to engage with them and understand their situation. 100%. You need to be able to engage with them in a cost-effective, consistent manner. Yeah. That's what we've been able to bring to the space. And it's, it's enabled those contact rates to be much higher. And getting to the business of it, from my perspective, it, in, it guarantees a fantastic return on investment. Yeah. And that's, that's really key to, you know, ultimately, if we're selling software as a service – and it yep. doesn't provide the service, it gets turned off. So, That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was a big, 
that's, you know, if we're brutal about it, the biggest challenge for social landlords 10 years ago was collecting rent. Here we are in 2022. The biggest challenge for social landlords this year will be collecting rent. Yeah. Because, you know, ultimately, we're looking at a section of society that needs affordable housing. And they, without doubt, you know, without getting political, everybody knows the pressure that's coming into the economy right now, cost of living crisis, it's more compounded on the people who've got less. And they tend to be um, the clients of our clients, whether that's social landlords or whether that's local authorities looking at arrears on council tax. It's the same people with the same challenges. Unfortunately, we've been able to develop services that we know engage these people in a way that works for everybody. I think that's fantastic. I, I, I love it. I, I, I can understand the concept. I can actually see the, the how it works and it, it, it's brilliant. I think it's genius. So that was sort of the beginning of learning what angel investing is. It was like buy, buying stuff for all these people, setting up their companies, learning how to structure them, learning how to find them capital, and so on. So we grew. Uh, so that's, that's really how I ended up uh, getting much more into the tech side of things. Always had a passion for it at school. That was the about the only thing I cared about. I loved computer games, programming, and that was uh, what it took as a bit of a, a hobby and a passion. So on the on the back of what I did in Vancouver to set up another company with a friend called uh, Band of Coders. It was specialized actually in games development. Um, we grew that to um, I think roughly 125, 130 people. Um, and so it was a pretty successful company um, over the years in that. But that's uh, threw me again really further even deeper in, into tech because ultimately the entire team were were engineers so learned how to work with engineers how to lead on how to lead them um and how to build a a de- sort of a, a disparate company because we were all we were full-time remote for the most of it yeah, and sure. then we ended yeah we ended up putting up hubs in buenos aires and toronto and uh, atlanta different places so um so I ended up uh, ended up selling that company and then moving on and uh, ended up working with uh, uh, I did a company called Brain Park which was Slack before its time, um, uh, but unfortunately well too before its time. <laughs> I mean years before its time. So the when starting that company, I had a vision of what collaboration would be like, what engagement when employees were like. So I had this. You know, I saw the future for sure. The problem is, is that when you're building something for the future, it's very hard to sell it in the present. Um, and so the, at that time, the thing I did not ask when starting the company was, is there a line item in the budget of a corporation for collaboration software? The answer to that was no. Um, it was before its time. So when I when I left school, I didn't really really leave with many qualifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I went on to just start um, practicing um, design. Yeah. Uh, whether that be graphic design, whether that be sort of uh, events, you know, uh, spaces, and kind of just started to kind of volunteer and work with different organisations, mainly charities and local community centres. Um, so by the time I was like out of school for a few years, I had a massive portfolio. So while I hadn't really been paid to do any work, I never had a job, yeah. but I had a massive portfolio of work. 
and I thought you know that was a good way to go really because I'd, I'd literally proven myself um, that I could go into any sort of situation and be able to produce and uh, you know content um, and design content um, and, and then I kind of went on to do like website projects graphic design projects working for tv stations and then I went to work for the museum I had a big love for history yeah. Um, never thought I would ever work at a museum, but that was an interesting stint I did there. And all that time, I was I was I had a big interest in gaming and three D. So I kind of taught myself at home. You know, I, I was doing a bit of design work anyway. I just started to teach myself how to do three D modeling, and mainly I was modding games. So I was making my own characters and like objects that I could inject into the games. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned how to use, how game engines work, and I learned how to three D model. And always had an interest in sculpting as well from school, but I just never had the opportunity. And this was kind of like a, a like a, a side way, really, to get into a bit of sculpting. So I started to do that and uh, started to share some of my work online and uh, managed to get a job at an interior design company uh, doing 3D visualization. Then went on to an architectural company and then an engineering company. And because of my interest in gaming, I, I kind of carried on developing that in the background. And I brought that with me to the visualization and I was having conversations with the architects and engineers about, you know, rather than just doing still like uh, digital photography of virtual spaces, you know, why don't we make them interactive so we could, you know, uh, switch things on and off and see, you know, get feedback from there. Yeah. And trying to understand like how the engineers were trying to communicate with their clients. You know, I had a good understanding of actually what we're trying to do here is either communicate, you know, energy usage or we're trying to communicate, um, you, you, you know, how a space will look, how the lighting scheme will work, you know, how the uh, glazing affects the heating or the energy. You know, working with all these different engineers gave me a really good chance to sort of experiment and try out different things. And um, I went back to university and then I did a master's in computer AD design and I specialized in um, the use of game engines and the architectural industry. So that was like 2010, 2011. Yep. And um, what was interesting about that was I was able to come back into architecture and engineering and really sort of, uh, um, you know, pioneer these interactive applications where, you know, on a touch screen, you could switch all, you know, switch all the lighting scheme on and off for a building um, and get energy feedback. Or I could create acoustic applications, which kind of you could change out uh, fit outs in a building and then actually hear the difference, you know, working alongside the engineers and using the data that they had to create something that very easily communicated uh, visually to clients, you know, what, what they were getting. Because I think the engineers would come with quite sort of boring data, yeah, which didn't really capture, you know, um, capture what, what the message was to the client. So I got really good at this sort of visual communication and very quickly uh, making the client understand that spending more money on the product in the long term will actually save them money. Um, or, or the benefits of, you know, uh, go, going for one scheme over the other. So that was extremely useful. That was, And then um, while I was there, I mean, the engineering company was very focused on the engineering while I saw that um, Immersive had wider applications because in 2014 and 2015, when the first Oculus VR headsets came out, yep, um, you know, I, I, one of them was plunked on my desk and it was like, well, I was tasked with sort of doing the research and development of the, um, of, of the same sorts of visualizations, but in a VR space. And so very quickly, I was able to transition everything over uh, to VR. So we were doing the same sorts of 
um, acoustic, um, you know, um, uh, visualization applications, interactives um, in, in VR. And then I saw that actually immersive has immersive technologies have a much wider application because like my mind was going wild. I was like, we could use it for heritage uh, to create objects that don't exist. We could use it for uh, theater experiences. We could use it for medical teaching, med- medical uh, procedures. Absolutely. Uh, looking at anatomy, looking at engineering models. So I was like really kind of excited by it all. But obviously the company, because their main business was engineering, they were just focused on that. And I just thought, well, there's a massive opportunity here. And if I if I need to capitalize on it quite early. Oh wow! So walking down that walking down, I'm assuming Wall Street or somewhere down down that <laughs> yeah. way in, in New York, and all of a sudden you had that moment. So let let's talk about Wealthyhood right now. This is this is the platform that you you're working on right now. You've got offices in Greece and in in, in London with with uh, the team the team distributed in both locations. Tell us about Wealthyhood and 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 you know the 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 elevator pitch of the product itself. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start from the from a small story on how we pivoted from the previous sure. uh, company to what was very relevant. So, yep. as I told you, we the initial plan was to uh, democratize access to these alternative investments. So we spent a few months, uh, we built the platform, and then it's time for us to start having our first uh, users. So I'm trying to pitch private investors, retail investors, my friends, everywhere else. Uh, yep. on why they should include 20% of their portfolio. They should include uh, hedge funds for 20% of their uh, portfolio. Everything goes, okay, that's fine. Uh, makes sense. Market neutral investments, you know, not correlated with uh, the mainstream markets and all that stuff. And then there was a common question. Alex, what do I do with the rest 80% of my money? So, okay, let's say I put 20% of your alternatives. What do I, do I do with the rest? And I thought, okay, because I was coming from the financial services and I thought, this is should be commoditized. I mean, everybody should know what to do with uh, their yeah, money. Yeah. It's very easy. It's very simple. Just create a diversified portfolio and invest in it for the long term. And there was what? And suddenly, I start getting into calls with people so that I can give them some tips and advices uh, on how to structure the rest of their portfolio so that they could invest twenty percent in our platform. You know, the one with the alternatives. Uh, And this starts to become huge and people just care about the portfolio construction part. And then we decided with Costas, okay, let's throw a portfolio construction tool out there so that people will be able to create a portfolio and then still invest in our platform for the alternatives. We put this uh, tool out there. Uh, It goes huge. Everyone wants to use the tool. Nobody wants to invest in the alternatives. They don't understand it. They just want the mainstream market. They just want to create a balanced portfolio and invest in it for the long term. Then in hindsight, we realized that we were asking people to uh, sprint and they couldn't even crawl in the financial uh, market. So we entirely pivot and we decide, okay, let's create the investing app that we take each of our friends out there, our family, our friends who have no idea about to do, who are not professionals, who lose money, day trading the markets. Let's take them by hand and guide them on how to create personalized portfolios and show them what's the way to start building wealth over time. So create the portfolio, invest consistently, investing in it month over month on a wealth building uh, strategy. 
Gotcha. So basically taking those day traders and showing them that long-term is a better option financially, and they'll make a lot more money in the long-term with the right investments. This is yep. kind of when it started to get a bit more kind of serious in terms of this maybe isn't just a hobby anymore. This is this is looking more and more like it, it could develop into a, a job of sorts. So I, I think that's kind of initially what drew me to it. And then that sort of catalyst for wanting to go further in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make it makes perfect sense. Was there was there any fundamentals during those early days that you thought, you know, this is what makes a good coach, in my opinion, like, were there, were there, were there key elements when you looked across it, you know, when you, when you watch Gordon at Hexton or when you, you know, listen to David and Phil at Northampton, or, you know, you saw Alex Tudor and Geraint Jones at these other events. Did you, did, was there any common denominator that, that you thought that's what makes a good coach? Um, yeah, I, I think that the sort of the, the two that probably, uh, well, there's obviously a lot more than two, but the, the, the initial ones that stood out for me, uh, uh, sort of upfront really were the observation and the listening skills, mm -hmm. which are, are, are required. And in a sport where, um, the, the coaching tendencies early on tend to be, a bit tell, 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 uh, which is quite an easy trap to fall into, whether that's through role justification or whether you just feel that you've got to impart knowledge. Uh, and that that's something that the tell approach was something I was never very comfortable with, to be honest with you. And I, I remember when I did my, my level two uh, course, one of the bits of feedback I got was, um, you know, you're organized, you, you, you know, you've, um, you've prepared, uh, but you're not talking enough. Right. And, uh, and I, I sort of went away with that and I thought, right, okay, got to talk more. Yeah. You know, I've got to, I've got to be more pr of a presence and all this sort of thing. So yeah. uh, in the preceding sessions, as you do as a very young, naive coach, uh, you go into sessions and you try and do something that you're not really very naturally good at doing. And in my case, that was, you know, talking a lot. And, and I, I got to the point there where I, I just thought, you know, this, this isn't working. You know, this is, this is not how, uh, these are not, the fun, not a fundamental that I, I feel uh, is particularly something that I'm, I'm, I'm that good at. And then, mm -hmm. well, funny enough, when I went on to the, went on to the level three, um, one of the first bits of feedback you, you have to do back, back then, you had to do mock assessments and all, and all yep. sorts over the course of the year of the course. And one of the bits of feedback I, I got fairly consistently was um, your observational skills and your listening skills are, are, are pretty good, uh, and you don't talk too much, which is which is a good thing. Yeah. And I, I'm there then thinking, right, hang on a minute. I, I get told on my level two that I'm not talking enough, and now I I'm being told on the on the higher course that that's actually a bit of a strength. So from that, I think the learning from that was very much. Um, the 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 fundamentals that you you sort of identify that you uh, whether that whether you resonate with them or whether it's just something that you do naturally, I think it's important that that you sort of you focus on those. Tell me, you know, give me a very very potted overview of of how you got to where you are and why you got to where you are. 
the very brief answer is people. I've got a passion for people because I've analysed this as well and because yep. I do a lot of stuff. I had a book out a year ago. I host a lot of events. I, I just get involved in so much stuff. But I do it because I love people. And, I you know, even when we spoke uh, earlier, there's just there's a value in every single conversation that you have you learn something by speaking to everybody and that's what I love and that's what I think underpins everything I did so I've been on heart 20 years now did the breakfast show for 16 years now doing drive time um and it was always my dream to do a big show in a big in a big area and the West Midlands is amazing first thing to say I think I've been here as long as I have and the show's been as successful as it has because of the people the people around here are just amazing um it's not my show it's not our show it's it's everybody's show because the kind of show we did especially in the morning but still on drive it's stories from people so we'll talk about stuff and then everyone else gets in touch with their take on it or their story we get callers on and we get texts on because everybody has a story so so the show i've always done has always been a mirror really to the audience and a place to share stories and to laugh about stuff, sometimes to cry about things when things feel a, yep. a, a bit tough, but it's just sharing stories from everyday people. And that's what I love. When I first started the show, I always thought as well, you know, a lot of people I know who do what I do um, turn up in the morning and broadcast to an area and then they go home and they do their own thing. I've, I've always thought if you're going to broadcast to an area, you've got to get involved in the area. Yeah. It's, it's people. I mean, just think yeah. having an interest in people and a love of people pretty much underpins everything you'll ever do. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our compilation episode, and it was great to listen to all our guests as they all had a fantastic story and something we could take from all of those conversations. I love how sportsmen and women, business people, and those in the media all have similar traits, challenges, and successes, and it's great how they have given up their time to share their stories as openly and as honestly as they have. I personally want to thank all our guests, Lockie, Taryn, Rob, Alex, Isabel, Philip, Melissa, John, Mark, and the super energizing and motivating Ed James, and of course, my dear friend Luke Swan. From everyone at the Vanguard Podcast and MetCloud, have a great holiday time and festive period with family and friends, and we look forward to sharing Series 4 in the new year. Remember everyone, take care, stay safe, and keep on innovating. Thanks everyone for listening to our compilation episode and it was great to listen to all our guests as they all had a fantastic story and something we could take from all of those conversations. I love how sportsmen and women, business people and those in the media all have similar traits, challenges and successes and it's great how they have given up their time to share their stories as openly and as honestly as they have. I personally want to thank all our guests, Lockie, Taryn, Rob, Alex, Isabel, Philip, Melissa, John, Mark, and the super energizing and motivating Ed James, and of course, my dear friend Luke Swan. From everyone at the Vanguard Podcast and MetCloud, have a great holiday time and festive period with family and friends, and we look forward to sharing Series 4 in the new year. Remember everyone, take care, stay safe, and keep on innovating.